When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and I'm flying solo today. I have a very interesting guest with us who hopefully is going to tell us a little bit more about her job before we jump into our book. So our guest is um, Helen Tersky, who is a physicist and oceanographer. She's here to talk about her newest book and Radio 4's book of the month, Blue Machine, How the Ocean Shapes Our World. Hi, Helen. Welcome to History Hack. Hello. Thanks for having me on. I'm really interested. I mean, we started talking about this just before... Well, we started recording, but I think our listeners deserve to know a little bit more about what you do. What does an oceanographer do? I mean, my I kind of thought it was a bit of a stupid question, but do you spend all your time in the ocean? What what do you do? Well, there's lots of ways for it to work. So I'm I'm an ocean scientist. It's it's a difficult oceanographer is an interesting term because not many people, most people who study the ocean started off as physicists or chemists or biologists, and I'm one of those. I'm a physicist, but I study the ocean. So uh, I'm an oceanographer because that's that's the dominant subject you know that's kind of what I use my physics for now and so there are different ways to do it um the ocean has lots of different uh aspects of it in my case I'm an experimentalist so I go to sea and make measurements from ships and I have lab experiments which tell me about fundamental bubble physics that is a a job I'm a bubble physicist um and so and then I have colleagues who work on you know computer models trying to understand the theory of of this kind of, of of you know what I'm the experiments that I'm studying so it's a big collaborative thing really and when I'm working out on ships, these are big collaborative experiments. You know, the, in November and December, I'll go to sea on a research ship for six weeks. And there will be, I think, 22 scientists on board and about 20 crew. And uh, we're just using the ship to do one big experiment. So we're all studying different aspects of the same thing. So we're all on the ship at the same time, looking at the same bit of ocean. But I will be looking at waves and bubbles and my colleagues will be looking at how the ocean breathes and others will be looking at what's happening underneath the surface. And so we're all measuring different things at the same time. Um, so, yes, that's that's more or less what ocean scientists do, trying to understand what the ocean is and what it does. 
That actually sounds like a super cool job. We had a, a archaeologist on a couple of years ago who talked about doing oceans archaeology, literally diving into the sea and excavating. And then recently we did a podcast with Michael Scott where he talked about, oh God, I've forgotten what the, the term of the uh, sponging, that was it, sponging, literally being able to pull sponges from the ocean floor. So I think that stuff is so cool. I mean, I love, I'm a fish. So for me, being in the ocean is 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 good fun. So I think you've got. Do you, should we swap swap jobs? Do you want to swap? Um, no, <laughs> but thanks for offering. Polish history is much harder, I think, in in the terms of uh, having to deal with politics and history and God knows what. I think you just go out on the ocean, right, and you just work on your field of research. Yeah, there's. I mean, you know, there are occasionally geopolitical considerations come into how you can do it and why. There was a debate a few years ago, actually. Um, a colleague of mine had. So we're starting to work with uh, little underwater vehicles that can take themselves off to measure things. And the problem with them is that they all basically look like torpedoes. And there was a case of a colleague of mine a few years ago who was trying to work in the Red Sea, I think on the Egyptian side. And he basically was told he shouldn't do it because he said if some, you know, if something that looks like a torpedo washes up on the shores of Jordan, you know, it gets lost and it just washes up. You're going to cause World War Three. So um, so I think he, he sort of drew back from that. That's rare, relatively rare. Normally countries are quite, um, as long as you tell them what you're measuring in their water, they're quite happy for you to do it. But um, yeah, they do keep an eye on you. I mean, we have to tell the local governments what we're doing. Out on the open ocean, there's obviously no law. So there, there's this thing called the law of the sea, but there's no jurisdiction over, you know, you don't have to ask permission to go out to the middle of the ocean and measure. But if you're closer to the coast, they, they want to know what you're doing. And occasionally you cross national boundaries and you're just out in the ocean, right? But you have to phone a different coast guard and ask for permission to come into their waters. So it's kind of, it, the politics is very, it's not like you at all. It's, it's there, but it's kind of, um, we're just out at sea doing our thing and we have to obviously obey the rules and that changes depending on the country. I love it. World War Three started by an oceanographer. <laughs> Headlines yeah. for the next newspaper. We're Sorry. trying not to, for the record. We are trying not to start World War Three. <laughs> okay, let's jump into some of these questions. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about how the ocean has changed over time. So tell us a little bit how the way we've studied the ocean, for example, and how it's changed over time. It's got quite, it's a relatively short history, oceanography. Uh, and uh, so there's a kind of, it depends how you define study, but obviously seafarers, sailors have been looking at the waves for years and they've been observing things and they've not necessarily understood what's going on. They've not understood what's causing what they see, but there was a huge amount of direct observational knowledge. And if you look in uh, Moby Dick, for example, you know, Herman Melville was talking to whalers and, and that book is informed by the closest thing to, to, by the knowledge of the sea. But it was only, when it came to actual science, it only really started um, in the second half of the 19th century. When, I mean, and it's partly, to be honest, a lot of it was partly that the Victorians, you know, in Britain, in England, were, were very, very keen on categorizing things. And they had an empire and they wanted to go out and measure things and categorize things, sort of because they saw science, the science of categorization as important, but also because as a means of control, you know, because if you understood something, then you could control it. And so the first global oceanographic expedition um, was started, left London in 1872. It took four years. So we're in the middle of the 150th anniversary now. And that was the first time a dedicated ship had gone around the world to 
see what the ocean was like, to take depth measurements, to take biological samples, um, to take temperature measurements. And, and really, if you look at their task, it was an astonishingly ambitious thing. And I think of it, so they had, I think, 400 stations over four years. And if you think about that, it's like, you know, going around the Sistine Chapel and for f taking 400 dots scattered across the ceiling and measuring what color they are. Right. And you're trying to understand everything you're seeing and what you're doing. You've got these tiny dots, these these stations where you just get one tiny look at what's going on. Anyway, they came back with a completely different view of the ocean. They, they knew that it was incredibly deep everywhere, but also that it had mountains and it had valleys underwater. So it wasn't the same depth everywhere. And of course, that was of great interest because they were setting that people were talking about undergraph telegraph under, um, underwater telegraph wires. You know, you had to lay those across the ocean floor. So they needed to know what's down there. How deep is it? And so, so, so that was, that's considered by some to be the start of formal ocean science, that expedition. And then, and then it kind of, you know, it took them a long time to write that up. And then the, then the world, the, fir the first and second world war came along. And of course, submarines came with that. And suddenly the ocean was a place for that you sort of went across. Um, it was a place that you could be in. It was a, it was a theater of war, especially in the second world war. You know, it was the U-boats, this thing where suddenly you could fight in the ocean, not just on the top of it. And so a lot of early oceanography, you know, things like sonar was developed during that period. And, um, people wanted to understand the layers in the water because they wanted to understand whether you could hide a submarine down there. And then coming out of the second world war, of course, we saw across the sciences, this huge explosion in the funding of science because second, the second world war was, sort of the beginning of a, t a much more technological way of fighting. And so after the war, there was, you know, the, the Office of Naval Research in America, for example, funded a huge amount of research into um, ocean acoustics and, you know, the structure of the ocean, pretty much for military purposes. I mean, they, a lot of it was open science, but it was kind of directed towards topics that the military were interested in. And then and then over the 60s and 70s and 80s, it sort of became more integrated into the rest of science and dedicated research ships became more common and it was recognized. And then, you know, funding it firstly to find out about it, to see if it was useful, but then, of course, more recently to see what's our effect on the natural environment? What are the effects on, you know, how does climate change affect the ocean, all of that kind of thing. So it's been it's been it's quite an interesting scientific history, partly because it's been invisible to most people uh, because, you know, you could, if someone studied steam engines or, or energy, you know, people saw the steam engines, but if you studied oceanography, people were interested in the, mon you know, did you see any monsters? How big were the waves? And then it kind of stopped there. So the public didn't really hear very much about it, but the science of oceanography was kind of building behind the scenes. Okay, really silly question, even though you told me before there are no silly questions. When you're looking at sources pre-19th century, can you get anything out of them? So, for example, when people would write their reports or diaries about oceanography pre that time period, can you get anything out of that now? Yeah, so there's actually a program. There's a um, program, and I'm just trying to remember the name. I think it's called Shiplog, where uh, people are transcribing the diaries of sea captains who were out on the ocean. So imagine yourself in the age of sail before any of this science has, has become apparent. And your job as a captain is to get a ship safely from A to B. And you're out on your own, right? When you're on the ocean, no one's coming to help you. No one knows where you are. 
your skill and experience and knowledge is the only thing and any maps you have and a compass perhaps sextant that's the only thing that's going to get you to wherever you're going so what are you going to do you're going to record your observations you're going to write down whether there were big waves or small waves whether there was a storm um perhaps something about the water temperature and so there was no systematic reason for recording that other than that ships captains had to keep a log and this because this information was useful it was understood that if you knew where the stormy seas were perhaps you could avoid them or if you knew that this time of year there was a very strong current perhaps you would you know either use it or avoid it and so there are there are modern science has gone back to those diaries and they've looked for the patterns that were written in those diaries and of course it's not the it's not the kind of thing that we would necessarily consider really you know solid data today you can't say the temperature was exactly 15.5 degrees c but it'll tell you where the currents are it'll tell you more or less what the shape you know of the ocean surface is is doing and and so yeah that so people had definitely have used those observations and then of course you know people could ask questions even the ones on land so uh, robert boyle who was a you know famous scientist of the 17th century who asked lots of questions about um you know the nature of everything basically but he's particularly well known for gas laws and things like that he he wrote a tract i think uh, in the mid 1600s i can't quite remember but it was called on the saltness of the sea and he was speculating on why the sea was salty which is a really profound question and he didn't have any way to get answers but he he could do some experiments and so he wrote this whole thing about why the sea is salty so there's things like that where it does pop up in science but they didn't really have any way to get the answers and he did something i mean he was very it was it was an amazing a paper actually it's very chatty he's kind of wittering on about all these things then he says oh by the way i thought of this but it, it, there was this it, it was an idea that came from aristotle that it was sunlight that made water salty and so boyle says correctly that well if that's true the sea should be saltier at the top than it is lower down so he went out and spoke to pearl divers and people who went down into the ocean he said well is it is it any less salty if you go down and they said no uh and so he said oh well it's not that then you know but he actually but he was trying to sort of work you know he's trying to use the evidence he had and then there's another one he, then he put a bucket of it outside his bucket of bucket of water to see if it would go salty in the sunlight and it didn't it, it stank so you know so people were thinking about the sea but they didn't really have any way to get at it to really measure it it was hard enough to measure things on land where everything's stationary and you can build big glass, you know, complicated glass apparatus. No one was taking any of that to see. That's really interesting. I actually didn't think of any of that. I mean, I'm a little bit dumbfounded. You've, you've rendered me speechless, actually. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry. It happens often. Okay. Um, let's me try and pronounce this correctly. Please do correct me if I say this wrong. So tell us a little bit about the Coriolis effect. Is that the, Cori the Coriolis effect? The Coriolis effect. Why yes. is it so important? So the Coriolis effect is the consequence of being on a spinning planet. So you and I sitting where we are, we can't tell that where we are is spinning, except that we can see the sun go around right so we can see something's moving somewhere we can't actually see whether it's us or not directly from our everyday experience and on for small things like in on my dining room table here or on your table it doesn't make any difference you know everything's going at the same speed so effectively nothing is moving relative to it to each other but if you put a fluid something that can flow around 
on a spinning planet, then it gets a bit harder because if you have a current that is trying to just go straight north, but it's going from kind of the fatter part of the planet to the thinner part of the planet, um, the spin of the planet is going to affect how it moves. And so it's, it's going to bend it to the right effectively. I don't know if perhaps you did this as a kid that, you know, I, I certainly did it you know, on roundabouts in, in playgrounds. You would try playing catch across the roundabout, right? And it's really hard because you can be standing directly opposite from your friend. And you throw the ball and it kind of goes off to the side. So basically it's the same thing. So water does that. As water is trying to flow north, it gets bent to the side. And what that means is on really large scales, things tend to spin. Things tend to go round and round in the ocean, um, and so it gives us these great, these great kind of merry-go-rounds. These these gyres, they're called, that that these big circular currents in the ocean basins at the surface, um, and so and and then the, the spin of the Earth causes all these other effects. So it's so it's kind of it's, it it makes the world very interesting because you've got all the other interesting things, and then you add this thing about the spin, and suddenly you get swirls, and then you know the, the shape the, the shape of movement becomes very counterintuitive. Um, so that's what the Coriolis effect is. And so it shapes how currents move around the planet, where they go. I'm assuming this is possibly going to become important later on in our questioning. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully our listeners have understood. I've understood, actually. I've got to tell you, I'm not very big on science. I don't have a brain for science. But you're making this much more easier to grasp the way you're explaining this. I really think you should you should launch your own podcast because I think it would be quite, quite interesting for us to people. I do, I do actually, I do actually host a podcast called Ocean Matters, but I did write a book. I mean, this is why that's, but I write, I write slightly more than that. I talk on other people's podcasts more than, more than that, more than my own, but um, yes. You make a successful podcast, I think, because you're explaining something so complicated to some, a simpleton like myself. Well, simpleton when it comes to science. Um, and I'm finding it really interesting, actually. But oceanography does age, which is exciting for me because I didn't know this. Uh, they aid the Allied landings in World War II. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So there was, for most of, you know, we were talking about seafarers and they could see big patterns, but for most of the time humans had been at sea, whether there was going to be a storm or not, or whether there were going to be big waves or not, you know, it just happened. It happened or it didn't. You got up one morning and, oh, there's a storm. You got, you know, you get up tomorrow morning, flat calm, right? And there's no explanation for why, and there's no way to know what's coming down the track. And Around the time of, you know, so the early weather forecast, Fitzroy first had a go um, in the uh, sort of 1850s and 1860s, and it was difficult for him to do. So, but weather forecasting, by the time of the Second World War, weather forecasting was, you know, that was coming along, right? You could get wind reports from different places. You could see these big patterns of storms. So you could see that the storms were coming better. But then the problem was that waves were still uh, just an unknown you know the, sometimes there were big waves and sometimes there weren't and um one of the methods of warfare uh in the second world war was these landing crafts so if you wanted to take some troops to another place and drop them off basically these landing craft were kind of flat bottom things that had a ramp on the back end and the idea was you kind of move them up to the beach and then you put the ramp down and then people would you know run off to the beach and then your ship could go back and get some more and the problem with this was that if you had big swell that day so if it was a really wavy day at the sea you got big waves crashing on the shore this whole operation goes very very wrong you know people get tipped into the water it's very unstable it's very dangerous you lose half your men before they're on the beach and so this was known and there was an oceanographer called Walter Monk who saw 
that this was a problem. And he could see that, you know, I think uh, there were landings planned for somewhere in Africa, and he could see that this was going to be a disaster because the, the proportion, the number of days on which the waves were too high was like 50%. So basically you toss a coin, like we're going to go, it's 50% whether everyone dies or they don't. And he said, well, maybe we can forecast where these waves are coming from. And the reason that it works is that uh, there's two ways of getting waves on the ocean. Well, there's two ways of them existing in one place. One of them is that if you, it all comes from the wind. So if you, it's like if you push, if you blow on the top of a cup of tea, you see little ripples, right? And the wind is just like that for miles and miles and miles. So those ripples become big ripples and they become big waves and the waves become bigger and bigger. And so where there's wind, you get these really kind of messy waves. You know, they're sort of, they're being, they're all sort of going in the same direction, but they're they're spiky and messy and they're kind of, it's it's a really, you know, difficult situation, but that's right underneath the storm. But when the wind dies down, the waves are still there. They're still traveling. They're still going somewhere. So then what happens is that they just travel off out into the ocean. And that forms what we call swell. And you get these really big, long waves um, that just travel outwards from storms for hundreds of miles. And so Walter worked out that in the places where these landings were happening, the storms were miles and miles away. But if you knew where the storm was going to be, you could calculate how long the waves from it were going to take to get to the shore. And then you knew when you were going to have your really high waves that were going to mess up your landing. So he started working on the physics of this, like you need a weather forecast, you need some understanding of the waves, and then you need to know something about the beach. Is it a steep beach? Is it a shallow beach? So he worked out how to do this. And they, they kind of, you know, him and Roger Revelle, they they got better at it. They practiced. And then D-Day came. And the for, the original date, so D-Day, you know, these landings um, uh, that were critical to, to the Allied war effort, they had to happen at night. They had to happen, I think, on a full, it was either a full moon or a new moon. I can't remember. So could I, I think it must have been, it must be when the moon was dark, so they couldn't be seen. Um, and they used these landing things. And the first day that was proposed by Eisenhower was June the 5th. And so they sent this information to the oceanographers, actually both in in America and in the UK. And they, they did their calculations and they came back and they said, look, if you go on the 5th, the waves, waves are going to be enormous. This is enough to wipe everything out. But if you go on the 6th, maybe it'll be okay. So, and the 6th was a less ideal day, but Eisenhower delayed the D-Day landings by a day because of the wave forecasts. And so on that day, there were smaller waves, but it was it was fine. You could land people. If they had gone the day before, the whole thing would have been smashed up, basically. And they'd have lost the element of surprise and they'd have lost the men before they got to shore. So and that was one of the very first, you know, large scale wave forecasts. And so there's this, you know, what's interesting about that is humans are just getting a handle on understanding you can predict what the ocean's going to do. And then you can make decisions based on that prediction. And so if it hadn't been for that that bit of ocean science, the outcome of that part of the war would have been very, very different. Have there been any situations that you know of where they thought the weather prediction and the waves of the ocean, they thought they got a handle on it, but they were completely and utterly wrong? Not that I know of. I mean, it was a it was a slightly uncertain art at the start, but I don't I don't know of any examples where because basically, if you have a little bit of science, it's always better than chance. So, I think you're always doing better than the situation you would have been in anyway. So, I think it's quite hard to pick up examples of it really going wrong. There probably are some, but I don't know of any. 
Okay, so we're moving on to the study of the bottom of the ocean because it's required a lot of innovation and engineering. How has that evolved? The deep sea has been a source of fascination because clearly you, you didn't get to go in it because it would kill you. That that was quite straightforward. So there were a lot of myths. You know, there was a myth for a long time that for, for centuries actually that things that, that things kind of floated in the ocean that are different depths so if you there was this kind of fear that if you died and you fell into the ocean you wouldn't go all the way down to the bottom you'd just kind of fall down to the middle somewhere and kind of float and there was this picture that maybe the ocean is full of all these things that are just stuck at different depths which is really creepy right so so there are all the and of course you know things came out of the ocean whales came out of the ocean things that looked like sea monsters but might actually have been giant squid came out of the ocean um so it was obvious there was something down there but people were generally afraid of it and then the first guide so so you could send down hooks and nets and you can kind of hook things back and see what it see what there was the first guy to really go and have a look was called william Beebe, and i think it's kind of it's about the 93rd anniversary just passed of his first test of this thing that was called the bathosphere and it was a, a metal sphere which is not very big it was about two meters across and it, it was spherical and it had three windows in the front and it had a hole to get in it and if you look at the photos of this william Beebe's bathosphere it's terrifying because it's really tiny and the hole to get in it is really tiny and two of them went in there and were just lowered down. So it wasn't like a submarine. It was basically just a, a sort of um, like a capsule that just got dangled on a piece of string. And they went down into the ocean and they could look, they could look and see what there was. And so they, and it was, it was William Beebe and Otis Barton was the engineer that made this thing work. And it was all a bit hairy, to be honest, you know, the windows cracked occasionally and, you know, there were leaks and all that kind of thing. But they were the first people to be dangled down into the ocean and look at de deep sea creatures in their natural environment. Have you just seen the picture? You found a picture and see your face. <laughs> I have. I've been while you were talking about it, I was like googling these uh, these photographs, and they kind of, you know, the uh, back in the day, the kind of the suits that you would uh, go diving in. You know, the giant suits. It's kind of the, the sphere is kind of like the head of it, but it also looks like a giant eyeball. I don't know. I'm feeling very mixed feelings about this thing. It's monstrous, terrifying. And please, I would never want to ever go down in one of these. It sounded, Barton apparently hated it and it sounded thoroughly unpleasant. And if you look, there's pictures, there's a picture somewhere of the two of them kind of peering out of this tiny window. No idea how they got in or out. Um, I assume they weren't, neither of them were particularly, you know, tall or tall men um but all credit to them they did go and they saw you know flashing lights that came from biology and they saw these weird sea creatures so bb was a biologist and so they saw these weird fish go by and he what bb was a, a really good writer and he wrote this book called half mile down that described what he had seen and this was really the introduction to the deep ocean it wasn't um it wasn't just what came up in nets it was actually looking at it but it was also there was humility in it like he described it as being like dangling in a hollow pea suspended by a spider web inside a cathedral that was how he saw himself right that he understood that he was a visitor in a an alien world and his all he could do was look there was none of this you know explorers of the time would go and they would conquer and they would kind of stomp across the land and you know they would do things and he was just i'm just kind of sitting here watching 
and so and his stories you know that they, they they sort of opened up the world of ocean science and then as the years went on people uh it was relatively late actually that people were able to send cameras down there that could feed a real-time uh, picture back to a ship so it was only during the around the time of the discovery of the titanic in the 1980s that the first cameras that you could drag along the seabed but actually see on the ship you know a kilometer or three kilometers above you'd actually w see what you were looking at so it took a long time to really see what was going on in the ocean um and then you know obviously you know submarines made measurements um and then people started to go down you know these submersibles became more common they, that you know, Alvin is the very famous one in the 1970s, um, where people could go down and look and switch lights on and take photographs and take recordings and do it much more scientifically. And that's when the that's when they discovered, you know, the great uh, ocean ridges and this pl the plate tectonics. This was real. That you know the, the the continents of the Earth are moving, and they could go down to those volcano underwater volcanoes and actually see and see that they were covered in life. That was a complete surprise. 1972, I think that was. Um, and so, so you know, 1972 is only 50 years ago that humans actually saw that there was life in the deep sea. I mean, you know, on the on the volcanoes and the really because BB could only go down half a mile, almost half a mile. The, these submersibles could go down several kilometers. And what you know, the idea that there was life in these deep, dark, cold waters was astonishing. Like you couldn't. A load of geologists went down. And they saw this because they were they were geologists, right? They were expecting rocks and there were rocks and then they were covered in crabs and they just, you know, blew their minds. They had no idea how this was possible. And so, you know, it's still difficult to get into the deep sea, but now we're much better. We have cameras, we, we can study it using sound and, and we have a much better idea of what's in the deep ocean. So the sort of evolution of how people thought about the deep ocean has been quite interesting because it's always been this kind of scary alien place and it sort of still is except now we know what the monsters look like we haven't discovered i mean everything have we there's parts of the sea if that's if i'm right we there's parts of the sea we haven't been able to get access to because it's just so far down am i am i right well it's not so much so, so there's this interesting thing in the ocean which is that the roles of light and sound are kind of switched. So in the book, the book I described, the books, the second half of the book is about the messengers, passengers and voyagers of the ocean. And the messengers are sound and light, right? That's what lets you find out what's going on a long way away. And up here on land, um, if we want to know what's happening a long way away, we look, right? We can look at the moon, we can look at a mountain and the light brings us messages about what's happening. But we take it for granted that if we're... Um, standing you know out in a garden and someone is standing two gardens over we can't really hear them very well so sound doesn't travel very far for us up here on land but in the ocean it's sound that's the long distance messenger and light doesn't travel very far so light gets absorbed really quickly so what you see is just a sort of um you know a sort of fuzzy bubble that might be a couple of hundred meters across but sound can travel a long long way so the and the reason i mention that is that um humans don't sort of understand how to look into the ocean because we're looking we're, we're like where's the picture but in the ocean you don't get these big vistas there's no like big you know landscape view of the bottom of the ocean in light but there is in sound and so 
we can send sound to to you know we can send sound down and get information back and that's sonar so we can map the ocean um just by you know you send sound down you basically measure how long it takes to go all the way down and come back up so you can you can map the bottom um and so the first thing is that we because we're visual creatures we underestimate that we sort of go oh sound doesn't matter but actually that's the way to see the ocean um and then uh so it's not that we can't get to the places in the deep ocean it's that it's really difficult and expensive and so you can't do it everywhere you know you can at the moment you need a submersible you need a ship you need a load of very high-tech equipment and of course you go to the places you know are interesting first um and so there's nowhere so we've we've been to the bottom of the challenger deep the mariana trench which is the deepest part of the ocean um, just around 10 kilometers deep so we can get there it's just it's really difficult <laughs> and we haven't done it everywhere so so it's it's kind of it's it's not that we can't it's just that it's really time consuming and we haven't but we have mapped it using sound so we do know what the shape of the seafloor looks like because we have listened rather than looked so let's stick with this idea of sound i mean how did that even come about how do we start using sound underwater well, it was, we were generating sound underwater for a lot longer than we, you know, every, everything, you know, ships after sailing ships, everything with an engine made, made sound. So we were definitely putting noise into the ocean environment. But the realization of the importance of sound, again, it was mostly a Second World War thing that people realized that you could send sound down uh, and you got a ping and a ping would come back. And this, you know, if you watch uh, movies where the submarines, there's always something going ping in the background. That's a sonar. And they work in slightly different ways depending on the type of sonar that it is but it makes this really distinctive ping and then there's a gap before the next ping and during that time the sent very sensitive instruments are listening for what comes back and if and if the sound bounces off something then then we know it's come back so around uh, in the 1930s and 1940s the, the difficulty was making so that so the principle of sonar was understood but the problem is you need to make sound underwater and you want, need to make an underwater speaker. And that's quite hard because water's really heavy. You've got to move. Like if you have to vibrate air, it's not very difficult because air's quite, you know, it's not very dense. You can just push on it. Making underwater loudspeakers was really difficult. And it was only the invention of the um, of piezoelectric transducers in the 1940s. Suddenly you had a way to do it. You had a way to make an underwater, underwater speaker. And then you could make sonar. And then you could map the ocean. And, you know, so it kind of followed on like that. And then some of those early discoveries um, in sound were, were weird. So when they first went looking, they were like, okay, this is great. We can take our ship along. We can send our little pings out. We can see exactly how deep the ocean is everywhere we're going but then there was this odd bit these places had this sort of odd floor so they would know for example that the sea floor was 300 meters down but the sonar made it look as though there was a floor at 100 meters as well as the one at 300 meters and this was seen like every ship saw this every ship saw this layer and then they noticed that it moved that sometimes it was a bit higher and sometimes it was a bit lower. And this was, you know, well below the depths you could dive to. So that 20 years people spent going, what is this? Like what, you know, they worked out after a while that it wasn't anything solid. And then they put nets through it, nothing came back. What is this? And so eventually they worked out that it's, it's mostly one particular type of fish called a lantern fish that's got a little air bubble inside it to help it uh, stay buoyant. And these fish are really good at swimming away. So if you get a net anywhere near them, they will just bugger off. So 
there's this enormous layer of life in the ocean that, that became known as the deep scattering layer. And all over the planet, it comes up at dusk to hunt. These little animals start swimming. They come up at dusk, they hunt in the darkness, and then they go back down. So there's this wave as this layer comes up and down. And it's made of these little sea creatures um, that are really good at running away. So they were really hard to spot. Um, so there were things, so biological discoveries. Again, the physicists were, were like, obviously, there's no life down here. We're just going to study the physics. And then all this life turns up that they weren't expecting. So, you know, and then the history of sound, it, it became more and more useful as, as time goes on. Okay, this this is quite interesting. I'm not quite sure we're going to go with this one, but if I roll three words to you, you've got to tell me what this is all about. So whale earwax. Uh, right. Well, it turns out that if you want to look at the history of the ocean, whale earwax is extremely useful. So the first thing is whales have earwax. Um, whales are evolved from land mammals. So they used to have, their ancestors had ears like us with a bit on, on the outside and a middle ear and an inner ear. And as they went underwater, you know, that outer ear bit, the, the bit that sticks out from your head, that gets in the way. There's a lot of drag. Um, and underwater, actually, it's much more efficient to hear through your jaw. So the sound, instead of going down your ear, comes in at your jaw. And this is this is true for us as well. If you put your head underwater, you're actually hearing through the bones of your skull. So the sound comes in through your whole skull and goes into your inner ear. So the point was that the whales didn't need that outer bit of the ear anymore because, you know, the sound's all getting inside just fine. And... So the outer ear over evolutionary, you know, adaptations, that disappeared, but the tube stayed and it just kind of got covered over with skin at the surface. And uh, so you can actually see on the modern world, if you know where to look, you can see a tiny dimple, which is where the ear tube comes to the surface. But they kept producing earwax because, you know, evolution just, you know, might as well keep doing it. And so the we when we produce earwax, it, it just sort of comes out, right? goes out into the world. Whereas the whale's skin had closed over so the whale earwax just got kind of pushed up the tube and it's like kind of toothpaste and it's lined up down the tube coming you know going into the inner ear and basically it doesn't change right it just gets deposited so you've got it's like tree rings you've got a record of a whale's life down this stripy sort of tube of earwax and uh, so that's good enough. You get a whale and you get, you've got a record of its life and you can see, you know, what was in the water, what it was eating, how stressed it was. And then a bunch of researchers from the Natural History Museum and the American Museum of Natural History worked out that they had lots of these kind of tubes of whale earwax and they knew the year the whales had been collected. And so they could see how old they were. So they could line up whale earwax segments going back 150 years from global whales and kind of measure what you know the what what what's been going on for whales over 150 years and one of the things that they measured uh was the stress stress hormone cortisol so they could basically see how stressed whales are and no, it's not hard to predict what they saw because they also had records of industrial whaling how many whales were being killed each year for whale oil and, and various other things and basically the whale stress pretty much exactly tracks with the whaling if humans are killing lots of whales, the whales are very stressed. That's that's perhaps not a surprise. You know, when the whaling moratoriums come in in the 1960s, well, the whales have the happiest decade ever um, since humans came along. But there's this exception. And the exception is during the Second World War. And, you know, during the Second World War, the humans are busy killing each other. They were not killing whales. But the whale stress goes way up. And the explanation for this is the noise that the, you know, bombs and ships and torpedoes, incredibly noisy. And whales 
absolutely sound is how they see the world so if you generate a load of noise they suddenly can't communicate they don't know where to go they're disoriented it's stressful because they've got this noise the whole time and so it, it the global population of whales was stressed during the second world war because of the sound pollution we were putting into the ocean and you can see it it's written in the whale earwax and so you can see both how important sound is to that creature but also how humans are you know even though we weren't thinking about it we were affecting the ocean environment um and it and, and it's written into the you know you can see it you can see it in the earwax that's incredible that something so simplistic i was expecting you to say that people collect the earwax for some sort of modern medicine or something you know what people do in the ocean they collect <laughs> weird fish for i don't know being able to cure an erection or something i don't know but that's really interesting being able to tell the age and the the whole literally the lifestyle and the stress and everything else just through something so simple that we discard all the time if that makes sense well the good the the, the interest the really interesting thing about it is that so the reason that they kept the bit the earwax samples is because the layers so when the people who collected these samples didn't know what they were useful for they thought that because it had stripes you could probably tell how old a whale was so the point was that for hundreds of years you know 150 years scientists collected these things and they didn't know. They didn't know that the stories were in there. They didn't know how to get at them. And suddenly you get a new scientific technique that lets you measure a stress hormone. And then you can go back through these historical samples. And it's a real, um, you know, it's a sort of celebration, I think, of, of the need for curators, that curators in museums, you know, we keep our history. We don't always understand why we're keeping it. But when you come back with a, different, a new way of looking at it, then the stories are there to see. And that's why I like the whale earwax story. It's that it's, it's, there were all these people who didn't really know why they were keeping this, but they thought it might be important. And then you could put the pieces together and look at the story you can tell. I think we should finish our last question. Something for Alex, because this is one of her favourites, apart from World War I, obviously. But is the sinking of the Titanic, I mean, how... <laughs> You'd like to think, I don't know, I'm creating all these sorts of scenarios in my head while reading this question, but you need to tell us a little bit more about how the ocean affected the the, the sinking of a vessel like the Titanic. Well, there's a lot of, obviously, the um, there's, there's two interesting parts. I mean, there's the fact that it sank, which we know more about, you know, generally people know more about the icebergs were shed. It was in the path of a load of icebergs in the North Atlantic. It, it hit an iceberg. But then the thing that, you know, there were two things that really made the Titanic famous. I think one of them was that it was supposed to be this unsinkable ship. You know, it's this enormous story and um, nobody imagined it could sink. And suddenly it's disappeared, disappeared overnight, 1912. No one really knows why. There's all these survivors. No one really believes the things they're saying because it sounds so ridiculous. Everyone's like, oh, well, they're cold and nearly dead. So they don't know what was happening. Um, but the other thing is that no one could find it. And it sank in a very deep part of the ocean, around four kilometers deep um, out in the North Atlantic. And what do you do? I mean, how do you search for a ship? The ocean is really, really, really big. It's really hard to explain this to people, but you're looking for something and the ocean is gigantic. How, how are you even going to start? And of course, humans being humans, being curious, kind of couldn't let it go. So they came up with all the, every year, like pretty much since the Titanic sank, there was another bonkers scheme for how we're going to find the Titanic. And all of them were expensive. All of them were completely impractical. No one ever succeeded until um, this guy called Bob Ballard in the early 1980s persuaded the Navy to let him borrow a ship for a couple of days. And um, 
The Navy let him do it. They didn't care about the Titanic at all. What they cared about was two submarines, uh, the USS Thresher, and then I can't remember what the other one was called, Scorpion maybe, um, that had sunk somewhere nearby. And they wanted to know what state those submarines were in, but they knew where they were. They knew where they'd sank. So Bob Ballard was told that he could go and he could he had to he had to go and look for the thresher and the scorpion he had to use the ship for that but once he'd done that whatever days were left he could go and you know play with his hunt for the titanic and what they learned from the thresher and the scorpion was that it wasn't the case that the submarine just kind of sank and was sitting on the bottom that you know they were damaged that's why they'd sunk but the bits of them were spread out over a kilometer there was a huge area where the bits were spread out and then when they got to the approximate area they thought the titanic was Bob Ballard realized that if you go looking for a single point, even something as big as a ship, you know, you've got a huge area, you're very unlikely to find it. So instead, he used one of the first camera systems that you could tow, it's called Argo. And it was a little camera system uh, down, you basically put it down on a rope, but there was a live television feed up to the deck. So what they could do is they could steam around in circles, and they could kind of see the seafloor directly below it. And so instead of going looking for the ship, he said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go looking for the debris because he thought the debris would be spread out over a wide area. And the reason that it is, is that um, when big things sink, they fall pretty much, you know, they, they kind of go straight down. They're very dense. They're very heavy. They sort of go straight down. But as things get smaller and uh, lighter, they can be, if there are currents, they can get carried sideways by the water. If they've got a shape that's pointier on one end, they'll tend to glide in that direction. And of course, things will just glide through the water sideways because of their shape. So potential, so the, the ocean's kind of sorting and the smaller things are, the longer they'll spend in the water column and the further they will get carried. And so Bob Ballard, set his crew to to doing these shifts where they were taking you know they were they were spread out quite wide that the sort of the lines on the grid that they were following were quite far apart um but they went looking for the debris and it took them eight days out of the 11 that they had i think and then they found it they found one of the boilers and once they had one of the boilers then they were like okay so it's somewhere near here and then they you know closed their search in a bit and then they looked and they the debris and they then they started to see wine bottles and glasses and these small things and eventually then they found the hull of the ship which was actually split into two so so it had the, the survivors were correct it had split into two those two halves of the ship i think are 700 meters apart i can't remember the exact distance um but they are surrounded by a kind of um a few kilometers of debris and so the only reason he could really find it was that the ocean moving all the pieces around gave him a much larger target and then he could and once he and then actually they they, they they've actually identified the spot where they think the ship actually sank because there were some really really heavy things that pretty much did go straight down and the two halves of the ship kind of both went off slightly sideways and the actual sinking point the bit with the really heavy stuff is in between the two of them um, and then there's just debris for kilometers around. So so it's, it was ocean physics that let them find it. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, being able to find the Titanic all because of, I mean, it, it is, it's all about physics uh, when you're working in the ocean, right? Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that biologists might disagree, but the, phys physicists, the, the <laughs> physics is, the, but the real point about the ocean, the, real, the reason I wrote the book is that it is, a, it is a physical fluid engine that is doing things all the time. And, and the things it does provide different environments for life to live and they provide effects like waves that we can see. And so it's the physics of this engine. Like if you understand that, that's, that's the, that sets the stage for everything else. Helen, this has been so interesting and I'm sure that we could probably go talking 
So there's so many more things. There's so many things we've missed on this list. But that means that everybody who's listening to this podcast has to physically go out and grab a copy of your book so they can read the rest of it. So can you remind our listeners the exact name of your book? It's called Blue Machine, How the Ocean Shapes Our World. And we will have this in our bookshop. So we will get a cut of the, uh, cut of the, uh, the what do you call it? Chris always does the ending of this slice. We'll get a slice of the payment. Helen will get a bigger slice of the payment and uh, Amazon will not get their uh, hooks into it. And uh, what is it they're trying to do? Build some sort of rocket to go into space or something? I don't know. Uh, along Multiple projects. Yes. Exactly. So Helen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book